before this building stood where it now stands, there was another building that the Bullet Lick Baptist Church met in. How many of you remember that older building? So you can see around here that a number of you remember the older building and <clears throat> meeting in that. I can imagine that when it came time to tear that building down, there was some sadness uh, because no doubt you had pleasant memories of things that had happened there. Were any of you saved in that building? Any of you saved in that old building? No one raised their hand, but uh, I'm sure that you had pleasant memories about that old building. And so there was some, some bitterness, uh, bitterness of sadness when the building was down. But then there was sweetness at the prospect that you were going to have another church building that would be big enough to hold, uh, hold the number of people that often come to this church building now that surely would not have fit in the old block building. Sometimes it's necessary for the old to be taken out of the way before the new can flourish. You may have noticed that uh, many oak trees keep their leaves all through the winter. It's new growth that pushes the old oak leaves off. The new growth takes place of the old. In this passage of Scripture that I'm preaching from, there is a bittersweet message. There is uh, some sweetness. Um... But I don't want to give away the last part of my sermon, but there is some bitterness also at the thought that the city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because the city of Jerusalem has for many centuries been the focal point of God's covenant with Israel. It was the place, it was the city where for generations uh, the, the Israelites had gone up there. They were required to go. The men were required to go three times a year. No doubt they would often bring their families with them, and I'm sure it was a very culturally festive occasion, something that they looked forward to year after year, people that they would see at Jerusalem that they, had not, they would not see any other time, but they would get together. Probably girlfriends and boyfriends were made there, and families were united, and so there was just so much about Jerusalem that was dear to the hearts of the Jewish people, and so... The book of Revelation is a book about the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in A.D. 70 uh, at the hands of the Romans, although, as I've said many times, much of the destruction that took place took place when the Jews were fighting amongst themselves during the days that uh, Rome had invaded the country. And so, but there's a sweetness that goes along with that, that bitter message, but that will be towards the latter part of the sermon. In the first part of this chapter, we have, uh, and well, let me say, in the big scheme of things, this is an interruption between the sixth and seventh trumpets. So you may recall that when we were looking at the seven seals, there was a, an interruption between the sixth and the seventh seal. So some important things that needed to be specified. So after the sixth seal was opened, we saw that there was a a special provision made so that the people of God would not share in the, uh, the, the uh, destruction that was coming. And so they were sealed on their foreheads, 144,000, I think a symbolic number, 144,000 from all the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And then a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe and people and nation and language sealed uh, as the, the servants of God who would not share in the destruction that would take place uh, centered in Jerusalem. Now, uh, 
I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but uh, the cities of the seven churches, those cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea, and so on, they're in Turkey. So that's, that's several hundred miles from several hundred miles from Jerusalem. I'm imagining the map of the Middle East in my mind. And if you, you know, the Mediterranean Sea curves around and Israel hugs the, hugs the, the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. So Israel is bordered on the west by the Mediterranean Sea. And then you've got, you've got to have a, a pretty good boat ride across the Mediterranean before you get to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and, uh, and the cities. So this is written to them. What's it got to do with them if Jerusalem is going to be destroyed? And uh, one answer to that is given in the text, so I'll save that for later on. But another answer is that with the destruction of Jerusalem, there was an empire-wide persecution against the Jews that broke out. Now, at this time in the history of the church, the number one persecutor of Christians was the Jewish people. And so this was a judgment that was centered in Jerusalem, but it spread against the Jewish people who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire, even in cities like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. You may recall in a couple of those letters, the chief persecutors are identified as belonging to the synagogue of Satan. They called themselves Jews, but they actually were members of the synagogue of Satan. And... uh, so that's, now we have an interruption between the, the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is going to be the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Before that happens, we have this very important interruption. And first of all, we have a mighty angel and his message. And so let's just take this as we encounter it going through. We have a mighty angel and his message. So beginning with verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Now we have had three of these descriptors, these word pictures, previously applied to a particular person in the book of Revelation. So we have seen in chapter 1 that Jesus' face was shining like the sun. We have seen that he had legs like pillars of fire. They were like bronze refined in a furnace. And then in chapter 5, or in chapter 4 rather, when we have a sight of the throne on which God and the Lamb are seated, there's a rainbow over the throne. So Three of the four descriptions, word pictures that we have of this mighty angel have been applied to God, either God the Father or God the Son. What about the fourth one, which is the first one in this list, a cloud? Well, your readers of the Bible will know that many times in the Bible, God is described as being enclosed in a cloud. When he appeared to the children of Israel, there would be a great cloud that would come down upon the testimony of meeting When he was protecting the children of Israel from their enemies, his presence with them was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so I hope I'm jogging some memories in your mind of scriptures in the Bible that that associate God and his 
mystery and his majesty as being represented by clouds. So who is this mighty angel? Well, I'm going to try to make the case that it is either the Lord Jesus Christ himself or an angel who is closely associated with him and who represents him because his characteristics are associated with those of a divine person. The cloud represents the mystery and the majesty of God. The rainbow indicates grace after judgment. Remember, the rainbow was put in the cloud after Noah's flood. Represents grace after judgment. What does the sun represent? Well, the sun represents light, and it is the sun that gives life. And so, Jesus Christ himself is the source of light and life for us. And the pillars of fire, his legs are like pillars of fire, represent irresistible judgment. He is coming to judge, and there is no way that you're going to escape these these legs that are like pillars of fire. So these characteristics are associated with the divine person. But why would Jesus be called an angel? Well, let me remind you that the word angel really means messenger. So angel is a transliteration. It's a transliteration of the Greek word angelos, which is very close to our word angel. And, um, but if we were to translate and not transliterate the word angelos, then we would translate it messenger. And so there are, of course, of course, Jesus is the messenger of God from heaven. Uh, But still, can we find places in the Bible where Jesus is closely associated with being an angel? Of course, if he is, if he is described as an angel, then he would be the archangel. Archangel just means like the prince of the angels or the king of the angels. So the word arch refers to prince. And so uh, keep your finger here, but turn back a few pages to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You've heard this many times. I've read it many times at gravesides of uh, brothers and sisters who are being buried. Let's notice a few similarities between what we have here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and what we have in Revelation chapter 10. So beginning with verse 13, Revelation 4:13. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as those who do not as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So fallen asleep here is a word picture for people who have died. There was concern in the Thessalonican church that maybe people who had died would be at some disadvantage when Jesus came back. And the answer here is, no, no, they're not at a disadvantage at all. If anything, they're going to be at an advantage. Verse 15 says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So we're not going to have the advantage over them, Will they have an advantage over us? Verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, 
And the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's the answer to the question. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. But the reason I had you turn to this passage of Scripture is that here we have a returning of the Lord, which I believe is future, but he is descending with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel. And so I have, until I was studying for this message, have always thought, well, I've never given much thought to it. So is this just an archangel that is coming along and shouting with Jesus? Or, as I now think, is this Jesus himself coming with the, the voice of the prince of the angels And then notice also, like our passage, it's closely affiliated with trumpets, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then there are also clouds in this passage of Scripture. We're caught up together with them in the clouds. And so I think that the case is fairly strong that this mighty angel that comes down is Jesus himself. That he is called an angel is no no prevention from that being the case. Let me show you a couple of other passages of Scripture where Jesus the Messiah is designated as a messenger or as an angel. Look in your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 63, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 63, verses 8 and 9. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. Note that he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. So he became their savior and then that savior is described as the angel of his presence. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Now turn once more to the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So the very last book in the Old Testament, Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger. Remember, messenger is a translation of the word angel. So, I didn't check in the Septuagint version of the Bible, but I am just 100% sure, 99% sure, that the word here in the Greek translation would be angelos. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Again, messenger is a translation of the word angel. So the first messenger is John the Baptist, but this messenger, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, that's Jesus. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Who's going to do all this? 
the messenger of the covenant in whom we delight. And so in the Old Testament, Jesus is sometimes referred to as an angel or a messenger. But let me make this clear. I'm not saying that Jesus is an angel in the way that we think of angels. So you know, there, there is God and then there are these heavenly beings that he has created And we generally just lump all of those heavenly beings into the category of angels. Jesus is not one of those. But insofar as the word itself, angel, can be used to describe messenger, I think that it is sometimes used in the Bible to describe Jesus as a messenger from heaven. And uh, that therefore a pretty good case can be made that this mighty angel coming down from heaven is the mighty messenger Jesus himself. Also, when he speaks, notice that the thunder resounds. Look at verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand. I'll get to that in a minute. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And so, as one of our scripture readings was Psalm 29 when it talks about the voice of the Lord being closely affiliated with thunder. The voice, uh, the voice of the Lord thunders. Uh, the glory of God makes the, the deer give birth and so on. All that we read about there in Psalm 29. And so I think this further strengthens the case that this mighty angel is the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, he has authority over the whole world. I think that's what's represented by he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. All the peoples of the whole world are under the dominion of this mighty angel. And then what about the little scroll? I told you I would come back to that. Notice that it is open, verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand. Well, now this is not the first time we've encountered a scroll in the book of Revelation. Remember that John says back in chapter 5, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then a mighty angel says, who's worthy? Nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth is worthy. And then John begins to weep. And one of the, one of the elders said to him, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and break its seals. And then when Jesus goes forward and takes the scroll, then heaven just breaks out into a, a great adoration party. And everyone falls down and worships Jesus And then he begins to open the seals. He opens the first six seals. There's a considerable break. And then when he opens the seventh seal, that's when the seven trumpeters present themselves. So now, I think that this is the scroll of the administration of God's kingdom, which includes both blessing his servants and also punishing his enemies, that this is the scroll that is open in the hand of this mighty angel whom I take to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it a little scroll now? I think it's a little scroll because the various plagues that are described in that book are about to come to an end. And so this would be like maybe some sort of a book that uh, you young readers would encounter when you were reading Harry Potter, a book that would get smaller and smaller as you got closer to the end. And so the little scroll gets smaller and smaller as it comes closer to being fulfilled. So I think that it's Jesus and uh, that he has this scroll open. 
this is not the first time in the Bible that we encounter this uh, judgment being depicted as a scroll. Turning your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2 and verse 8, and we will see this also Uh, The judgment upon Jerusalem, this time the judgment that took place in 586 B.C. is also given to Ezekiel as a scroll. Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 8. All of chapters 2 and 3 are relevant, but I just want to read about three or four verses here from chapters 2 and 3. So Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now let me just pause here and say this is going to come up later in Revelation chapter 10. John is going to be told, take the little scroll and eat it. What does it mean when he eats the scroll? What does that represent? I think we have the key right here. Uh, the, The scroll represents the word of God that contains hard things, it contains bitter things. But uh, the Lord says to Ezekiel, don't be rebellious like the house of Israel and reject my word. Instead, you receive my word. You eat my word. And so I think that the eating of the scroll, both in Ezekiel and in Revelation 10, uh, demonstrates a willingness to accept all that God reveals, even though it contains some hard, bitter things. So Ezekiel is told, open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had written on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So, this is a scroll that contains some hard things, mourning, lamentation, and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll And go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So that's all that we'll read there. We'll see some of these same things that show up later in chapter 10. So this is a a little scroll. It's little because most of the plagues described in the scroll have, will have already been fulfilled by the time the last trumpet sounds. And, uh, and uh, well, we'll see more about the scroll a little bit later on. Now, notice the title of this point is uh, A Mighty Angel and His Message. I might have added Mysterious Message because not everything is revealed. There's something that is hidden Look what it says in verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Hmm. Now, why is that in the Bible? It's like, I'm sure that there were other things that he saw and uh, that he never wrote down. The Apostle Paul talks about being caught up to the, the third heaven and seeing things there that is unlawful for anyone to write about, so he didn't write about them. So why is this even here? He he hears what the seven thunders say. He's getting ready to write it down, make it part of this book. And God says to him, at least a voice from heaven says, seal it up. Don't write that down. 
there are some things that are reserved for the distant future. You see, most of what is in the book of Revelation, John is said, don't seal it up. Don't seal it up because it's about to unfold. But there are some things in the book of Revelation that are sealed up and are not revealed. God reserves the right in this book to say there are some mysterious things. If I want you to know them, then I will reveal them elsewhere. And so I think this is a a mystery. Perhaps it's revealed in other places in the Scripture, but it's not revealed here. This reminds us that the secret things belong to the Lord. Uh, The things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children, and we are to read them and understand them and guide our lives by them. But the rule of our conduct is not God's secret will. It's wrong to try and find out God's secret will. This is what's wrong with with horoscopes, with uh, astrology. It's what's wrong with fortune tellers. It's what's wrong with uh, reading tarot cards or having your palm read. All of this is trying to determine what the future holds through, through supernatural means. Of course, that's the only way that the future could be foretold through these ways. And that supernatural means is not under God's blessing. And so stay away from all those things. I've heard from uh, some of our students in recent days that uh, it, it has become, again, very popular among young people to... Uh, what in our day we would have called horoscopes, to read their horoscopes and to find out what do the stars say about what my life is supposed to be and so on. Stay away from all of that. All of that is demonic. All of that is a supernat- an endeavor to pry supernaturally into things that God has said, don't write that down. There are some things that are secret. Seal them up, don't write it down. Now in verse 5, we see this mighty angel. By the way, if you don't think that it's the Lord Jesus Christ, that's fine. If you just say that this is a, an angel who is closely affiliated with him and is clothed with his authority, that's fine. I think the best argument that this is not the Lord Jesus Christ is that we don't see John falling down and worshiping him. Which he did when he saw the glorified Christ in chapter 1. So... Uh, I think that's a significant argument. To me, it's not something to fuss about. It's either Jesus or someone who is closely affiliated and endowed with his authority. And this angel, verse 5, this angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Let me just pause there for a minute and say, apparently under the right solemn circumstances, it is okay to swear. Because here we have either Jesus or one of his close uh, angels swearing. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't swear. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. But I don't think that that's a total prohibition against all swearing. Although people swear all the time way too flippantly. So... A lot of times uh, people will just have it as a a stock phrase. I swear to God, it's true. I don't know if you've ever thought about what it means to swear to God. When you swear, you're saying, I am asking God to confirm the truth of what I'm saying. And if I am lying, 
then I agree that God will punish me for this lie. Well, that's a serious thing. You say, well, sometimes I just, I don't even mean it. That's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. The Lord says to his people under the Old Testament, when you swear, take your oaths in my name. I am the one who has the power to supervise these things. And uh, so when, when someone lays their hand on the Bible and says that they swear to, to tell the truth, what that means symbolically is, if I'm telling a lie, let the curses in this book against liars come against me. It's a very serious thing. I don't find any occasion ever in my life to swear to something. Now, a possible exception to that may have been when I got married. Because the marriage covenant comes very close to an oath. So do you, in the presence of God and these witnesses, I mean, if you, that's, that's, that's the language of a, of a swear. That's the language of an oath. In the presence of God and of these witnesses, do you solemnly promise to remain faithful to your marriage vows? So uh, if you are called into court and called upon to, to swear, I think you should do that without compunction of conscience. That under very special, very serious circumstances, I think swearing is appropriate. I think when Jesus was on trial, the person speaking to him, the high priest said, I adjure you by the Most High God, are you the Christ? I adjure you. That is, I put you under oath. And Jesus responded under oath. It is as you say. Uh, When the Apostle Paul says things, I speak the truth in Christ. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I am not lying. That's a form of an oath. And when he says something like before God, that is, I'm calling upon God to witness the truthfulness of this. So, be a person of honesty. When you say yes, Do your yes. If you say no, then let your no be no. Don't have to swear to say this is really true. But under appropriate circumstances, I do think that is legitimate. We have an example of it right here. When he swears, we have... Well, let's let's see what he says and then see what it is. So he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So what we have here is an answer to prayer. Which prayer? Well... Let's turn back a couple of pages to chapter 6. And I think that you will see the prayer and also the prophets to whom a a promise is made. So in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, here's what we have. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Note that. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So here's a group of people who have been killed for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who proclaims the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus has identified during his ministry Jerusalem as the killer of the prophets. So in Matthew 23, verses 34 and 37, and also in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, we find Jesus describing Jerusalem as the killer of the prophets and the place where the prophets must be killed. And so here are a group of prophets, and they are given a good word. They are given, yeah, a good word. The, the, Greek, the Greek word here is eu, it's a prefix, which means good, like euphoria. Eu, and then angelos, which means messenger or message. So this is a good message. They're receiving a, a good message from the Lord. And when I went over this, I told you, I think this accounts for that passage in Peter when it says that the Lord uh, preached to the spirits in prison, that it is referring maybe even to this very passage when the Lord gives a good word to these prophets who have been martyred for the word of God and tells them, you wait just a little while longer. And now, in answer to their prayers, this angel says, There will be no more delay. Now the vengeance for which you prayed, and which I told you to wait for a little while longer, that vengeance is about to be poured out on the city of Jerusalem. So, this good message accords with the good message. Uh, That that phrase at the end of verse 7, just as he announced to his servants the prophets, that word announcement is that word I just explained to you in Greek, eu, which means good, plus angelos, which means good message. So here is, again, a good message that he gave to his servants, the prophets. And this message entails the mystery of God being fulfilled. Now, in our scripture reading, our second scripture reading, I had you turn to, or we read from the screen, from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. And there... One of several places in the New Testament, the mystery of God is described as the inclusion of Gentiles with Jews in the kingdom of God. So, what happened with the sounding of the seventh trumpet that finalized this mystery of God being revealed, the inclusion of the Gentiles with the Jews in the kingdom of God? And the answer is the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is where I come back to my opening illustration when I asked how many of you remember the old block building that was here. So in order for this building to set on this location, the old block building had to be, had to be torn down. And that is what had to happen in order for the kingdom of God to be fully proclaimed, embraced, and realized on earth is that this, this temple situated in Jerusalem had to be destroyed so that 
Jews would not continue to say, as they had been saying, if you're going to become part of the kingdom of God, you've got to become a Jew first. For men, that meant that you had to be circumcised. And so the destruction of the the temple and the destruction of the Jews as a nation in A.D. 70 was an essential part of the mystery of God being revealed just as the Lord had announced this good message to his servants, the prophets. So that is the mighty angel and his message. The mighty angel is either Jesus or someone closely affiliated with him. And the message was, your prayers have been heard. Vengeance is going to be taken against the number one persecutor against you. And that was not the Romans at this time. It was the Jews at this time. Vengeance is going to be taken The mystery of God is going to be revealed with the destruction of the temple and the the dispersion of the Jewish nation. All this is going to be an answer to your prayers. Now, let's end up with this bittersweet ministry that was given to John. In verse 8 it says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages, and kings. So John receives this ministry. It's a bittersweet ministry. Actually, sweet, bitter. Sweet comes first. Sweet, bitter. It's a sweet, bitter ministry. But he receives it from the hand of Jesus. Jesus, or his close associate, is the one who's there with the open scroll, which spells out the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But he receives it from Jesus. As I pointed out earlier, eating it represents that he accepts the task and the message. So I wonder if uh, the writers of the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit had been around some of those families where, where the kids would only eat certain things. Only four or five foods that they might eat and they refuse everything else. And the Lord says, oh no, that's not the way it's going to be in my family I'm going to put it on your plate, and if you're a good child, then you'll eat it. And so the Lord hands this scroll, which contains some bitter things, and John takes it and he eats it. It is sweet because it is just, but it's bitter because it is sad. John is a Jew. John doesn't hold hatred in his heart towards the Jews. No doubt it has grieved him as through the years of his following Jesus, and afterwards he saw how that his own people behaved towards Jesus, ultimately being responsible for his crucifixion, and how that persecution breaks out among the Jewish leaders against the church, and and they do all that they can. All the while, I'm sure that it just grieves, it grieves him the way that perhaps your heart would be grieved if a child of yours turned against the family. Your heart would be grieved that this, this one that you have loved so much is now behaving in such a, a hateful way against your family. I'm sure that's the way that John felt towards Jerusalem. 
You catch glimpses of that uh, when you see Josephus writing about the war and the destruction of Jerusalem. Josephus was a Jew. Josephus had strong emotional ties to Jerusalem and grieves to see it behaving so wickedly. It's sweet because it is just, but it's bitter because it is sad. But it's not just a local parochial event. The judgment is centered on the land of Israel, but it has worldwide implications. And I think that's what is implied in verse 11. When John was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And one of the great implications of the destruction of Jerusalem was that now you and I, people who at one time would have been strangers from God and from Israel, are now brought near and are are united with the people of God, Jews and Gentiles all over the world. People from Africa with black skin, people from Asia with yellow skin, people uh, from the Americas with red skin, uh, people from Europe with white skin. Now we are all one when we are in the family of God. We're all, we're all one family. And our focus is on, not on our differences, not on our diversity. The focus on the Bible is never on the diversity among the people of God. Instead, it's on the unity among the people of God. And so, what a privilege it is. I think it was in my prayer that I, I, I mentioned, I don't know what our ancestors were doing 2,000 years ago in the year 20. A.D. But my, according to my genetic makeup, I come almost exclusively from the British Isles, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and England. Those people were, were worshiping trees and rocks in those days. My grandparents. And then the light of the gospel comes to England, and I don't know when it was. I don't know when the first Auric people or the first people who were my ancestors became believers in Christ. But what a privilege it is. We are eating from vineyards that we did not plant. And we are drinking from wells that we did not dig. But it goes back to this, the mercy of God, the wrath and the judgment of God, the wrath against His His physical people, the Jews who had been the darlings of his heart for 2,000 years. But then with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the doors of salvation were flung wide to the whole world. And now we can sing grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above when heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Now, there's still a bitter sweetness to this message. We don't hold any animosity in our hearts against the Jews. There's no point in pretending that the Bible does not lay the death of Jesus at the feet of the Jewish people. It does. And and it is not anti-Semitic to say that's that's what the Bible teaches. But we, we feel sorrow. The Apostle Paul could say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for the people of Israel, the, the people of my own family. And uh, we can say we feel the same way towards uh, the Jewish people. We, ha- we don't hold any kind of glee that the Jewish people were, were decimated and have been persecuted as badly as they have been persecuted throughout history. We want to do what we can to prevent that from happening. And many of the, 
the brave lives that we will remember tomorrow that were laid down in sacrifice were, were laid down to stop a, a monster who was, who was killing Jewish people by the millions. And so there's a bitterness in our hearts as we think about God's judgment against Israel. But then there's also a sweetness in our mouths as we know that branches were broken off of the olive tree so that we might be grafted in. So remember, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.